0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, in the spring of 2003, I was getting ready to finish up my freshman year at Ball State, and I had just been hired by New Life to start a youth ministry program. There were about four or five junior high age students at the time. Um, I was 19 years old, so not that far in age from many of them. Uh, and the first thing, one of the first things I had to do when I, when I you know, was getting ready to start the youth group is I had to teach a lesson to the junior high students, and I taught on 1 Samuel 14, which uh, is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. So kind of flash forward to this year, the, the youth interns and I were having this meeting to discuss Uh, what we were going to talk about on our youth retreat, and we came up with this theme that we really liked, and then we were coming up with passages that we thought would fit into this theme. And 1 Samuel 14 came up as just a really great passage that that fit well with our theme. And as I was preparing the retreat lesson on it, I kind of thought, wow, this this would actually make a pretty good sermon now that I'm I'm looking at this passage again. Uh, And then the opportunity came to preach here at New Life one more time before uh, my family gets ready to move to St. Louis in about a month. Um, And I realized that coincidentally, at least on my part, the first lesson that I taught here at New Life, about 13 years ago is also the same passage of the last sermon that I'm going to preach while on staff. So um, God is, is very providential and it's cool to see the way he works things out. Uh, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 23. I'm not going to have a stand and read this all together because uh, there's a lot of verses, but also uh, just the way the narrative flows, it works a little better if we read this in smaller sections. So we'll, we'll read the first couple of verses uh, in just a second, but I want to set up some of the context. 1 Samuel 13 is a fairly famous passage, uh, fairly well-known, um, in the sense that this is where King Saul does not wait for God. Uh, King Saul is getting ready to battle the Philistines. Israelites Israelites are very outnumbered. The Philistines have a much larger army. And so King Saul is getting agitated. He's getting nervous. The people are becoming afraid. And King Saul has been given a commandment from Samuel, God's prophet, to wait for Samuel to arrive on the battlefield to sacrifice the Lord. This was a sign that God was going into battle with them, that God was the one who was going to win this battle for them. Uh, Saul gets nervous, and when Samuel is late, Saul offers a sacrifice himself, and he gets rebuked, and he's told that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel, will not continue uh, in in Saul's family. So uh, Saul's soldiers are afraid. They start to split up. Some of them retreat to Ephraim. Some of them uh, go over to the Philistine camp, Um, and then the Philistines send out three companies of soldiers to surround Saul and the Israelites, and chapter 13 closes with this This statement. On the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Michmash. So chapter 13 does not leave us with a very encouraging picture of King Saul or of Israel's chances against the Philistines. But we're going to look at chapter 14 and see how this narrative continues to unfold. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll we'll read the first couple of verses of First Samuel 14. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the time to be here Lord, we thank you for um, just an opportunity to worship you, that we are uh, made new and made clean by your son and able to worship you freely. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move now and make make your word clear and understandable to us. Uh, We pray that we would be encouraged, strengthened, lifted up, and challenged, uh, roused to action by the testimony of your scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 1 Samuel 14, verse Verses 1 through 6 are what we're going to read first. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, "'Come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side.' But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone." Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan's statement here in verse 6 is a really powerful proclamation of faith. This morning, much of our message is going to be focused specifically on the kind of faith that Jonathan professes when he says this. Nothing can hinder the Lord. Nothing can hinder the Lord. Uh, when, I was a junior, when, I, when I was in junior high and high school, um, I ran cross-country and track, so I didn't play a lot of the organized sports. A lot of my friends said it's because I wasn't very athletic. They obviously never ran that much. Um, <laughs> But I, I always loved playing, like, pickup games of kind of any sport with my friends. It was just the, the casual, I, I enjoyed the casual side of just playing sports. And my favorite was always baseball. Uh, I don't really know why. Maybe it was just this nostalgic America's pastime uh, thing. But I remember that especially in elementary school and, and in junior high, whenever we, we'd get up to bat, we'd always kind of do this. Or, we'd, or if you watch Sandlot, you take the bat and you hold it out like that. Does anyone know why, why do you do that? What's, what's that? Who did that? Babe Ruth, right, okay, so in the 1932 World Series game, top of the fifth inning, this is a a picture actually taken from uh, some amateur film footage that was recorded of Babe Ruth. So Babe Ruth has two strikes and two balls on him. Right as the pitcher's winding up, he makes this gesture where he, he points out to center field. And then he proceeds to smack one of the longest home runs that's ever hit out of Wrigley Field. It travels a distance of over 450 feet. It lands in the street outside of the stadium right outside of the center field bleachers exactly where Babe Ruth pointed. And the announcers at the time and then a the newspaper later was like, Babe Ruth called a shot. And they did, you know, magazine spreads. You get this picture on the left of Babe Ruth kind of reenacting his point. Um, the picture on the right is Lou Gehrig shaking Babe Ruth's hand as he rounded the bases after the home run. Lou Gehrig also goes up to hit another home run. Um, if you're a baseball fan and all, you probably know there's some speculation over whether or not Babe Ruth really called a shot. Was he, really, was he really saying, like, this is what I'm going to do? Or was he pointing at the pitcher? Was he pointing at the other team's player? You know, what, what exactly was going on? Um, in Babe Ruth's autobiography, he says this. With two strikes on me, I guess the smart thing for Charlie to have done on his third pitch would have been to waste one. But he didn't, and for that, I've often thanked God. While he was making up his mind what to pitch, I stepped back and I pointed my fingers at those bleachers, which only caused the mob to howl at me that much more. Ruth threw me a fastball. If I'd let it go, it would have been called a strike, but this was it. I swung from the ground with everything I had. As I hit the ball, every muscle in my system, every sense I had told me that I had never hit one better and that as long as I lived, nothing would feel as good as this. I didn't have to look, but I did. That ball just went on and on and on and hit far up in the center field bleachers in exactly the spot I had pointed. Now, Babe Ruth was a pretty media savvy guy. And if he could, he loved spinning a good story into a good legend. So whether or not his account here is actually true, what is conveyed by Babe Ruth's quote is that he knew what he was capable of and he stepped out onto that plate ready to do it. And in a a similar but much more powerful way, you see Jonathan stepping out with the same kind of confidence and faith, not in himself, not in what he can do, but in what Israel's all-powerful God can do. And you see this clearly in verse 6 when he says nothing can hinder the Lord. I mean, he's stepping out with confidence in what he knows God can do. This passage says a lot about Jonathan's faith, and there's a lot we can learn through a closer examination this morning. So what I'm going to look at this morning is three questions related to Jonathan's faith. What produced Jonathan's faith? What was the posture of Jonathan's faith? And what made Jonathan's faith powerful? So what produced Jonathan's faith? What was the posture of Jonathan's faith? And what made Jonathan's faith powerful? Uh, So let's look first at what produced Jonathan's faith. Uh, The kind of faith we have is often related to a variety of different circumstances, Um, and oftentimes, it's, it's the circumstances that we find ourselves in the situation or our environment. Um, so looking at those for a moment, is there anything in the circumstance of, or of uh, 1 Samuel 14 that would produce Jonathan's faith? So if you look at this passage, we see that Israel is outnumbered. They have no weapons. They are divided. They are surrounded. And they are hiding. It's not a great recipe for, for faith in that moment. There's really very little in the circumstances that would give Jonathan any hope that they could win this battle. But what about Jonathan's environment? You know, we, we learn a lot about how we, how we trust God, how we exercise faith from, from our family environment. So if you look at Jonathan's family environment, in chapter 13, his father Saul is rebuked for not trusting in God or waiting on the Lord's timing. Saul doesn't go to battle, but he's hiding from the Philistines. Chapter 15 describes another act of Saul's disobedience where God rejects him as king and says he's going to raise up another. Uh, and the chapters that follow, Saul consults a medium, Because he can't trust, because he's not willing to trust God anymore, and he tries to kill God's anointed king. So it might be a stretch, but I think it's probably safe to say Jonathan didn't learn a whole lot about faith from his father. Uh, In fact, the fact that Jonathan has any faith at all, let alone this great faith, is, is really miraculous. So, what produced Jonathan's faith? What encouraged him to trust the Lord so much? Well, verse 6 gives us a very clear answer to this question. Again, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This statement that he makes to the armor bearer, it shows what's producing Jonathan's faith. It's his knowledge of God. It's his knowledge of God. And don't you find the, the same thing true of you? Doesn't our knowledge of God produce in us a stronger faith? I've seen that more than anything else in my life, knowledge of God increases my faith. And this is also the method that the Spirit uses for working faith into our lives, right? Faith does not miraculously just like, appear out of nowhere. Typically, faith comes when we're, when we're reading the word, when we're hearing sermons preached, when the spirit reminds us in a moment of what we've already heard about God, which is why hearing the children say these things that they know about God is so exciting because the spirit will use those later to increase their faith. Uh, maybe the spirit raises up brothers and sisters to encourage us with, with the truths of scripture, but ordinarily, the spirit works faith into us by reminding us of who God is. What he's done for us. Uh, When Jonathan says nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, he is conveying a very clear knowledge and understanding of the power of God, of who God is. God is powerful to save, and he delights in saving his people, and Jonathan knows that. But also Jonathan says he's powerful to save, whether by many or by few. That shows that not only does Jonathan have a clear understanding of what God can do, he also knows the way that God likes to work. God likes to save, whether by many or by few. If you think think about the Old Testament, Stories that Jonathan might be drawing on from this. Uh, stories like Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samson, Gideon, etc. The list goes on and on. God routinely saved Israel through one person or a small group of people rather than a large army. So in this circumstance where Israel's outnumbered, where they're hiding from God, where there's very little reason for faith, Jonathan has faith because he knows what God can do and he knows that God often likes to save through a small group of people rather than a large group of people. What produced Jonathan's faith was his knowledge of God. Uh, Jonathan's statement in verse six shows us what produces faith, but it also tells us a lot about the posture of his faith. Uh, so let's let's continue reading on. Uh, we'll start with verse six again, but then read through verse ten. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, "Come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few." And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And, they, and if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. So what was the posture of Jonathan's faith? These verses show us that Jonathan's faith has, has two kind of remarkable qualities. His faith is imaginative and it's balanced. It's imaginative and it's balanced. How is Jonathan's faith imaginative? Well, verse 8 through 10, Jonathan, in verses 8 through 10, Jonathan outlines a pretty creative plan. Rather than just kind of sit back and wait for something. Rather than waiting for God to bring the battle to them, rather than waiting for the sign, or rather than even just jumping up and attacking the Philistines haphazardly, Jonathan comes up with this plan, right? He and his armor bearer will come out of hiding. If the Philistines invite them to climb up, that will be a sign that the Lord has given the Philistines into their hands. Jonathan wants to serve God. He doesn't want to continue cowering at the feet of the Philistines, but he also doesn't demand that God give him this, this Clear sign before he does anything. He doesn't demand that God initiate the opportunity to fight. Instead, he comes up with a plan so that he can put himself in a position to be used by God. Jonathan knows what God can do, and he responds with a plan to see what God will do. His his faith is seen in this kind of imaginative plan that he constructs. It's something he thought out. It's something that came to him. Um, this is a difficult but important message for many of us. Um, often, and, and I find myself doing this a lot. We don't act on behalf of the Lord because we're afraid. We're afraid of consequences of awkward or uncomfortable situations, and we're we're really good, actually, at over-spiritualizing that, right? Um, I mean, how many times when when God is really laying a situation on our heart, when when we're really feeling like, I need to go talk to that person, I need to go meet that person, I don't recognize that person at church, I should go introduce myself, and when when you really feel God kind of laying a situation on your heart, um, it's really easy to say things like, well... I'll do this, but first I need to pray a lot about it to decide if this is really what God is calling me to do. Um, Or God is sovereign, let's just just see what he does with this. Um, Or, well, I'm ready, I'm ready to be used by God, I just need a really clear sign. And then then we cite examples from scripture, right? Like, oh, Moses asked for a sign and God gave him a sign. Gideon asked for a sign and God God gave him a sign. Uh, But scripture doesn't really commend those examples to us as examples of great faith. God called Moses and God called Gideon and they both kind of hesitated and doubted and asked for signs. Those are really more examples of God's graciousness in giving signs. They're not examples of this is the great faith, this is the kind of faith that you need to have just to, to stand up and do things but wait for God to give you a sign. Are, are those really the best examples of standing for God? Um, and more importantly, are we really called to inactivity until God gives us this like official slap in the face, here you go, here's the writing on the wall, go do it right now? Um, yeah, I, I think God calls us to action more than he does calls us to waiting. Uh, For many of us, the most imaginative things we do to step out or stand for God is retweeting Bible verses on Twitter or posting on Facebook, sharing articles on Facebook. Oftentimes, that's about the extent of our imagination when it comes to sharing our faith. And even that can be kind of difficult. Uh, But most of the time, I think we ignore or we just simply don't look for creative ways to serve God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. So Jonathan is a man of intense faith, and he doesn't wait for God to give him a sign. Instead, he uses his imagination, and he creates a situation where he can stand for God and still trust in God's sign, to still actually get a sign from God. Faith like this is difficult. It's uncomfortable. It requires, requires risk and sacrifice of some kind. Jonathan risks a lot, and he potentially sacrifices a lot. I mean, his plan was not, let's reveal ourselves to the Philistines say, don't come up, then we're going to run away. I mean, it was, we're going to wait. I mean, he was placing himself in the hands of God, but also potentially in the hands of the Philistines. But what would it look like if we used our imagination in the same way that Jonathan did to serve God? What would imaginative faith look like in your life? Three potential examples of this. Obviously, there's a lot more. Uh, But maybe this means being imaginative in your relationships. Maybe it means seeking out creative opportunities to connect with your neighbors. Uh, Maybe it's shoveling their driveway when it snows, mowing their lawn, organizing neighborhood events so that you can meet your neighbors and through those relationships uh, you can share the gospel, you can invite them to church, you can see the kingdom expanded. Maybe this means reconnecting with estranged or just really difficult family members so that through that relationship they would experience the grace and forgiveness of Christ, they would see the humility of Christ in you uh, and be called to respond. Maybe the gospel would go out in that way. Are there ways you can be creative or imaginative with your relationships in order to stand for God? Uh, Maybe this means being imaginative with your schedule. Are you missing opportunities to grow in your knowledge of Christ, to serve the Lord because you're just really busy? An example of this, uh, one of the youth group girls who graduated last year, her name was Allie Howard, and um, she came to me one time because she loves dance. And she had three dance classes that she took on a weekly basis. She took uh, ballet, tap, and jazz. And she asked, you know, uh, does the youth group do any kind of, she was new to the youth group, and she said, do you, does the youth group do any Bible studies or things like that during the week? And I said, oh, yeah, we have this weekly Bible study on Wednesday nights. And she went, oh, that's my jazz class. And that's the one I love the most. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I can't, I, can't, I can't move things around. But the next year, Allie showed up on Wednesday and said, oh, wow, did your jazz class get moved? And she goes, no, I just stopped taking jazz. Really? Wow. Um, I have to imagine that was an incredibly difficult decision for an eighth grader to make, to give up not only one of her her dance classes, but the one that she loved the most. But Allie really wanted to get connected with the youth group and she really wanted to grow in her knowledge and her understanding of God. And I saw God reward that. I mean, Allie's faith became really intense. She had just intense spiritual growth while she was here in New Life and and even to this day. Uh, Strong, godly relationships were formed and she developed a passion and a thirst to know more about God. Um, To this day, she continues to be one of those youth group kids who just constantly encourages me uh, to grow in my faith and to grow in my knowledge of God, constantly uh, reveals to me my, my laziness at times because she is so focused on God and a lot of that came from God honoring this act of faith. Can you be imaginative with your schedule? Are there things that you could give up or rearrange so that you could serve the ministries of this church more or at all? Uh, Or serve local ministries like Reed Short Town or Muncie Mission? Uh, What about Kids in the Meadow? I I mentioned that with the the children's message. Kids in the Meadow is a a VBS kind of ministry that we do. It's Monday nights, Monday evenings in the summer. Uh, It means giving up. If you want to serve the whole time, it means potentially giving up a lot of your Monday evenings in the summer. And that's a big commitment. What other ways you could be imaginative with your schedule and perhaps give give some things up so that you could step out in faith and serve the Lord, serve our children? I bet with a little imagination we could make more things work in our schedules. Uh, What about being imaginative with your budget? This one hurts a little bit, actually. Uh, in 2010, we were doing a VBS, and the, the children were raising money to support some of our missionaries in Mexico, and uh, Connor Stevens, one of the, the boys in our congregation, I heard this story about him. They were, they were driving home from VBS, and they stopped to get some fast food, and Connor asked his mom, how much is our food going to cost? And she said, oh, you know, around $20, and Connor goes, can we just go home and eat leftovers and then put that money in the, the, the missions offering tomorrow at VBS? Maybe Connor was just trying to, like, I feel there was some battle, like, if the guys got more, then, then they got to throw a pie in the face of one of the grotters or something like that. But maybe, maybe that's what he was thinking of. But, but I've told that story before. People are like, oh, that's so precious. What a cute little boy. Oh, what a wonderful story. It is precious. It's a cute little story, right? But it's also a really great example of imaginative faith. Here's Connor, a little boy, connecting the dots and using his imagination. Can I give more to God? Oh. I don't like eating leftovers, I would rather go to McDonald's, but I'll eat leftovers if it means I can put $20 in the offering plate tomorrow. Can you be imaginative with your budget? These are the ones that kind of sting me a little bit. But perhaps that means we don't need the highest speed of internet possible. Or the cable package with all of those channels that we're not actually going to watch. uh, Or the latest and greatest device that Apple releases, that's why I have my iPhone 6 in the back of my pocket. Uh, or, what about the monthly subscriptions to magazines or to streaming music and movies and television shows? You know, these things aren't bad. I mean, they're really not bad. I mean, I've got a lot of these things. Uh, but if you look at your budget at some point with the idea, what could I cut in order to serve God more faithfully? You might find that there's a lot of categories where you have the option to cut things that you don't actually need, but something that you think, I could cut this. I could get this out of my budget in order to have more money to tithe to my church, to give to church planning to give to our missionaries. Uh, Zach and Katie King are two of the missionaries that we support here at New Life. They they have come from our congregation. Um, They are $500 a month from getting on the field. That's the only thing standing in between them and getting on the mission field right now. If you think about it, that's about 10 people supporting them at $50 a month or 20 people supporting them at $25 a month or any way you break that down. Um, If we use a little imagination, could we find that money in our budgets? Would find $25 or $50 a month in our budget and see Zach and Katie get on the mission field next week? I mean, can you imagine what God might do if we stepped out with faith like that? Uh, this idea of imaginative faith is, is hard to swallow sometimes. It's, it's a bold, it's a radical, it's a countercultural idea, uh, and it's hard. I mean, like I said, I struggle with this. I don't like taking big risks. I like waiting on a sign from God. Um, I often cower and make excuses when I'm challenged. Uh, so if you're like me, you need to hear the message of 1 Samuel 14. It's, it's a call for us to step out of our comfort zone, to step out in faith, even though it's difficult, uncomfortable, or uncertain. But some of you don't quite struggle with that as much. Some of you are like, I can tell you, like, oh, imagine a faith, this is a tough thing. But some of you are like, yeah, preach it, you know, bring it. I, I want to do this. I'm ready to be used by God right now. Um, you're ready to see God do big things. You're ready to, to go home and spend money on anything including food or a place to live you're ready I mean you're ready to just give everything for God and that's awesome and you know God God's going to use that passion and he he wants to harness that however Jonathan's faith has another message for us as well Jonathan's faith is a call to be imaginative and it's a call to be balanced and I think sometimes we'll struggle with one or both of these Uh, but what is it what is what do I mean when I say Jonathan had balanced faith well let's look again at verse six We are going to do more, but verse 6 is the one we're going to spend a lot of time in. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Uh, Up there I have the NIV, which I actually think the wording of that, I I prefer it a little bit here, where uh, Jonathan says, uh, Let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on their behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do you see the balance in the posture of Jonathan's faith? Do you catch it when he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, or perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf? Jonathan put his faith in God. He came up with a plan, but Jonathan left everything in the hands of God. He left all the results in the hand of God. He doesn't presume to know exactly what God is going to do. Um, he says, God can save us, and maybe he will. How will we know unless we put ourselves in his hands at his disposal. Jonathan doesn't presume to know exactly what the plan of God is. Jonathan probably could have come up with a lot of reasons why God wasn't going to defeat the Philistines. Saul just sinned. God often doesn't follow up the sin of the king with a a victory in battle. If Jonathan knows these things, then then he has every reason to assume maybe God's not going to do this, but he wants to place himself in the hands of God and see what God will do. He leaves the results entirely in God's hands, and that's the posture of his faith. I think we struggle with this In our contemporary Christian culture, right? We don't. We like to make these really big, definitive, bold statements, and we don't want our statements messed up. We don't want them like weakened by statements like maybe or perhaps or if. Um, Some people might say that's a sign of weak faith, but I really think it's a sign of Jonathan's strength—the strength of his faith. Um, Think about some of the statements we make, and I'm not—I'm not criticizing these statements at all. Maybe a little bit. Uh, we, we make these statements. If we step out in faith by this time next year, God's going to pack new life to the roof. Right? We say stuff like that. We don't say it here. I mean, it would be really cool if Bob says stuff like that. But we don't have to say that kind of stuff. Um, or we, we say, if we all start praying and get involved, then God's going to change the political face of this country overnight. That's what God's going to do. I know what God's going to do. That's that. Or we say, let's make our plans so big that God has to fulfill them. Which, I mean, that's a good statement. I think the, the nuancing is a little bit different. These statements aren't bad. They all desire good things. And the passion is definitely something we need to cultivate in our lives. We need to be that passionate. Uh, and we like the drama and the edginess of the statements, but we don't want to see them weakened by words like maybe or perhaps. I mean, if you think about it, if I were to say, if we step out of faith, then God might fill this place to the roof by next year, it just, the wind gets knocked out of that a little bit. Or, let's make our plans so big that perhaps God fills them. I mean, <laughs> they just, they start to sound weak, so we don't use language like that, but perhaps that's really because we don't have a balanced view of what it means to really trust God with our plans, that we don't like trusting God with the results of our plans. I can say definitively, if we step out in faith, God is going to use us in some way to bless the community, to further his kingdom. If we put ourselves in God's hand, we will be used to accomplish his plan. I don't know exactly what that is. Maybe, and hopefully that involves packing new life to the roof, going to five services. I'm leaving so I can say stuff like that because I don't have to deal with the fallout of that. <laughs> Uh, look at Jonathan's faith in 1 Samuel 14. He's not brash or arrogant. He doesn't assume that his plan is the will of God. His perhaps is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strong faith. And the strength and obedience of his submission to the will of God. In his plan, Jonathan confesses both the power of God to do great things, but also the freedom of God to do whatever God wants. And he shows that what he desires most is the will of God, whatever that may be. Jonathan doesn't, doesn't confine himself to one outcome. He confines himself simply to be used to accomplish the will of God. This is a a phrase I I read in a commentary by a guy named Dale, Dale Ralph Davies. He says, True faith does not dictate to God, it trusts his plans and purposes. True faith does not dictate to God, but it trusts his plans and purposes. Jonathan's faith is a call for us to be imaginative and to act, to step out, to place ourselves in God's hands, but then to wait and see what God does. Trusting in his plan and his purpose, trusting that his will is better than ours. That God is all powerful. It's hard to get that initial boldness to come up with an idea of what to do. To to, to come up with a way to stand for God. To to create an opportunity where we can place ourselves in God's hand. But then I think it's even harder sometimes to actually trust that God's going to do something with that. That we don't have to make something happen with that. It's hard to trust in God's plans instead of our own. It's hard to be content in God's results instead of seeking our own results uh, I found a lot in ministry that there are times where I focus really hard on creating something, and then I look over here and go, whoa, that's really cool. How did God do that? I wasn't even paying attention. You know, and i have been focusing so much on my plans, I just neglected that God raised something else entirely in the midst of my ministry. Well, this leads nicely to our last point, which is the power uh, of Jonathan's faith. What made Jonathan's faith, faith powerful? Uh, to help us answer this, let's go ahead and look at the, uh, the remaining verses, verses 11 through 23, because the results of Jonathan's faith are, are really astonishing. They're really powerful. So again, 1 Samuel 14, starting in verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men, within, as it were, a half furlough's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah and Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went, oops, lost my place. For the ark of God went at the time with the people of Israel. Now when Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth The results of Jonathan's faith are really powerful. Two men alone kill 20 men. Panic and confusion break out in the Philistine camp. Probably understandable if two men can take down 20. And then out of nowhere, the earth starts to quake. And the Philistines start to kill each other. And the army of Israel comes together to drive the Philistines back. What made Jonathan's faith so powerful? Well, obviously it was God. You see right there in verse 23, so God saved Israel. Uh, Out of nowhere, the earth started to quake. Uh, Clearly, God is working here. Jonathan's faith is powerful because he places it in God. And that seems like a pretty basic statement, but how often when we make plans and when we step out in faith, do we find it hard to place our, our faith truly in God? It's so much easier to trust our own plans and our own results when you finally get up the nerve to, to witness to someone, to, to pour out your life and to share the gospel with them. Oftentimes in my head I feel like, well, this, this was such a hard decision for me to make to finally get to the point where I did this. They must. They have to become a Christian now. Um, I want to be used by God to convert people. I don't want to be used by God to, to give people more opportunities to harden their heart. Uh, but I have to trust God with the results of my faith. Um, I want to give more to missionaries and see them get on the field and see my budget increase so I have more to give, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Um, I want to give my time to the church so that I will feel like I'm being useful and And I have more time now, but oftentimes things just get more hectic. I get more busy. Uh, Sometimes we can confuse faith with optimism. And the only reason I bring this up here is uh, it's just really easy if you're an optimist to be so excited about your plans and to be so excited about the results that that you think are going to happen. And then you get so excited about trusting in the results more than you do about what God's going to do. Um, faith is an optimism. Faith is not some spiritual power that just makes the impossible things that you want happen. Um, faith means trusting in something greater than yourself, which means trusting that there's someone who might have better plans than you. Uh, faith rises up when we can't find a single reason to be optimistic. Faith comes in hopeless situations because it looks to God, not to the situation. When I taught this uh, for the youth group, I came up with this uh, kind of dorky thing called Spiritual Physics 101, but since I'm teaching, you know, youth, I can be dorky and get away with it and They think it's funny, or at least they humor me. I'm not sure which one it is, but maybe a little bit of both. Uh, But I came with this this thing called Spiritual Physics 101, and these are kind of written as if they were uh, laws of physics. So the the first principle, there's three of them. The first principle is the power of faith is directly related to its object. Faith is only as powerful as the object it is placed in. Principle two is faith in something finite is a finite faith bound by the limitations of its object. Then principle three is faith in something all-powerful is an all-powerful faith bound only by the character and nature of its object. So the question is, what are you putting your faith in? Is it your own plans? Is it your own purposes? Are you coming up with ideas but then putting all of the emphasis and faith in those? Are you making the mistake of thinking that your plans and details, that these things you figured out, that you were, maybe you were praying when you came up with them, and they make sense, they're logical, they seem to be what's best, and because of that nothing else should happen, that they are the best thing, they must be God's will and he must help you accomplish them? That's, that's so easy to do, but, but again, if that's what you're placing your faith in, I would just reiterate, the power of faith is directly related to its object. Faith in something finite is a finite faith. Jonathan came up with a plan, but he did not trust in his own plan. He trusted in God. He was bold and active, and he was willing to serve God at all costs, but he was obedient and submissive to the plans and the purpose and the will of God. I want to close with, with this exhortation. Babe Ruth pointed out to the center field bleachers because he knew what he could do. Babe Ruth pointed out that he knew what he could do, and he was ready to do it. Jonathan engaged the Philistines because he knew what God could do. Jonathan was able to display the powerful faith because he knew what he did about God. But we know even more about God. Jonathan knew what God could do, but we know what God has done. Think about this. Jonathan, what did he know about God? It was a lot of those Old Testament stories, but we have the complete picture We have the complete testimony of scripture that that tells us the gospel of Jesus Christ, that takes us from the fall in the garden all the way to the new heavens and the new earth, to an eternal kingdom that is established by the power of the blood of Christ shed for us. We have the testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection So that through him all darkness, all sin and death would be banished from the world and that we as God's people would dwell with him for eternity. Jonathan knew what God could do, but we know what God has done. Really, if Jonathan's faith was produced by his knowledge, we should have a far greater faith and a far greater boldness because we see the complete picture of scripture, the complete testimony. So in response to that, we need to go. We need to step out in faith. We need to come up with imaginative plans for building relationships with the people around us, for inviting people to church, for evangelizing. Come up with imaginative plans for for freeing time in our schedule. To be in the word. To be active in our church and community. We need to be imaginative about how to give more to our church and to missions and to church planning and see the things that God is passionate about happen. As God's people, we are called to place our faith in the one true all-powerful God. And who knows what our all-powerful God would do. Who knows what he's going to do? I mean, we are called to place our faith in him and to be used by him, but who knows what he's going to do? Let's find out. Let's place our faith and our trust in God and see what he does. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings to us. Lord, we thank you for scripture that teaches us who you are, that teaches us about you, that shows us how to put our trust in you. Lord, we pray that you would give us faith that is imaginative and balanced, faith that seeks out opportunities to trust you and to stand for you. Faith that seeks out opportunities to be used by you but also waits to see what you will do, is eager to see your plan and your will accomplished not our own. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for sending your son to die for us to live and to die on the cross so that through him we know we may accomplish all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.